0: So, Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and that it is right and it is the best. And so, Jesus, we pray in these moments that you would fill this place and that you would help us to hear what you want to say to us today and that you would make us different people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello, 945. It's great to see you guys. Good to be with you here. I want to start today with a story. Um, The Federal Aviation Administration decided to use a cannon-like device to test the strength. This is really loud. Like, is it really loud for you? It's really loud for me because it's all about me right now. Sorry about that. All right, so let me back it up. Uh, So the federal administration, uh, they decided to use a cannon-like device to test the strength of windshields that were installed on airplanes. The test, that's called the chicken ingestion test, actually shoots a dead chicken into the windshield of an airplane at approximately the same speed that that airplane would be at in flight. Now, the theory is that if the windshield doesn't crack when hit by this dead chicken carcass, then it will survive a collision with a real bird in flight. Makes sense, right? I'm kind of glad somebody's thinking about those things. Well, a British locomotive company heard about the test and they asked the FAA if they could borrow the device. The company makes these high-speed trains and they wanted to run a similar test on the windshields of their trains. So they loaded the bird up and they fired it at the windshield, but the bird blasted right through the windshield, shattering it into a thousand pieces. It knocked over the engineer's chair and it put this big dent in the back of the cab. Well, they couldn't understand what had happened, so they asked the FAA to investigate, and the FAA, they sent out a team who interviewed the technicians, they reviewed the reports, they looked at all the documents and watched the video, and after the investigation was complete, they submitted the following report, and it said, after a thorough examination of the procedures and the test results you received, we strongly recommend that in the future, you thaw the chicken out before firing it from the cannon. (laughs) Apparently, no one questioned the decision to use a frozen chicken. Like, apparently, there was no debate with or without bones, regular or extra crispy, frozen or thawed. You know, no one thought to ask this most really important question. Now, now, I have to tell you that I first read this story in a book, so I thought it, was a, thought, thought it was true, putting it in the sermon. But then this week, as I was looking through the Internet, turns out there are several versions of this story flying around the Internet. One version has the British company giving the device to the Americans, and it's the Americans that fired the frozen chicken through the windshield. And maybe my favorite version has a cat climbing into the cannon to eat the chicken right before the cannon fires, so the broken windshield is the cat's fault. But, you know, maybe you can't believe everything you read, and it's still a funny story. I, I thought so. And, um, <laughs> but more importantly, it really points to the fact that, we, you know, this, this idea of asking the right questions, important questions, especially when we're doing really important stuff. Now, this is the last sermon, ser- sermon in a series that we're calling Backstory. And the question that we've been asking is this question. What does the history about what has been happening in Seattle and the east side, what does that say about what God might want to do right here, right now? And we're asking this question because we are a church that's committed to revival. We want to see revival in our marriages, revival in our neighborhoods, revival in our workplaces, people experiencing the love of Jesus, and so inviting Jesus to be the leader of of their lives. So we want to know what has happened in the past because that says something about how God might want to move in our area now. And specifically it says something about how God might want to use you and me as part of his revival project. Now one of the things about Seattle and the East Side that we are known for is that we are known for being progressive. That is how researchers and academics around the country who study the Pacific Northwest, that's how they characterize us. We're progressives. Now, progressives want to make life better, more fair, more just for everyone. So they make changes in education or in the church or in political processes and systems in order to do all that. Now, uh, some people feel uh, uncomfortable with this label progressive because it has political connotations, and so I think a better word for progressive is reformer. And Pike Place Market is this great example of the early reformers at work. Like at the turn of the 20th century, farmers were selling their produce to middlemen who then sold it to consumers, and the farmers weren't making much profit in that at all. So, a councilman, Thomas Revelle, proposed this open-air market where farmers could sell their produce directly to consumers. And the idea was a tremendous hit. The first market sold out in minutes and ensured that farmers would receive a fair price for the stuff that they grew. Now, farmers' markets, like the one that we host here in Bellevue, at Bell Press, those are flourishing throughout the Pacific Northwest. Now another example of early reformers at work is the city of Issaquah. Now, any Issaquites here? Anybody from Issaquah? There's a cup, all right, good, fantastic. You probably already know this about your city. Issaquah Creek for centuries was filled with salmon, which was a vital food source for people there. And the people who lived there made the salmon a central figure in their art and their dance. But by the late 1880s, with the arrival of the railroad, the mining industry, and the lumber industry, Issaquah, this town you live in, became this boom town, Issaquah, a boom town. I want you to have that in your, in your mind. So it, it wasn't long, though, before these industrial abuses severely impacted the creek and the salmon run nearly disappeared. So in one of the earliest efforts to restore an ecosystem, the, the city reversed the impact on the salmon run by creating environmental reforms and by building the Issaquah Fish Hatchery. And so today, this annual uh, Salmon Day Festival, which began in 1970 and attracts thousands of people, it's actually there to honor and to celebrate the salmon. Now, there's lots and lots of examples that are going on in Seattle on the east side, like Derby Days in Redmond, which began as a fundraiser so that they could improve uh, the athletic programs in Redmond schools. Now, the point of all this, the reason why I'm telling you all this, is that the history of Seattle, and of the east side is a story of a region committed to progress, to human flourishing, to the preservation of the environment. And that makes us here unique. And I think that says something about how God has has moved in our past and what God wants to do, how he wants to use us right here, right now. Because there's lots of places in our country and around the world where people resist change. They're not looking for better because they're content with what they have. That is not us. We are reformers. Now, there's something about us here on the east side and in Seattle that makes us want to change things, makes us want to innovate, because because we long for something better. So let me ask you this morning, what do you long for? What do you long for in the relationships that you have with the life that you're living? What would you like to see reformed? Now in the passage that we read earlier, Jesus announces that something new and something radical is happening in him. That God was breaking into this world, bringing his kingdom here now. And that meant this entirely new way of living for people who believed what Jesus was saying. Healing the sick, bringing sight to the blind, proclaiming the good news wherever they went, those were all signs that pointed to the fact that the kingdom was actually breaking in right here into this world right now. Now, Jesus came to this world for many reasons. He came to pay our ransom for sin. He came to conquer death He came to seal the promise of eternal life for every one of us. And many people just stop right there, like that's all there is to Jesus. But if that's all there is to Jesus, then this life is simply about living a certain way and putting up with the bad crummy things around us until one day we die and then we get to go to this heavenly destination place. But there's so much more to this life. And Jesus is so much bigger than that. And when he stood in that synagogue in Nazareth, announcing the fulfillment of the scripture that he had just read from Isaiah, he was declaring that heaven was right now populating the life of earth making new things out of old broken things, creating good things out of bad things, new faith and new relationships with God, marriages healed, liberation for the poor, an end to homelessness, education opportunities for everyone, racial and, and, and gender equality. And there, where those things are happening, there is where heaven is showing up on earth where the life of heaven is populating earth and God's kingdom is breaking out. And we, we get to be part of that. Now, when uh, I was in my second year at Fuller Seminary, I was uh, scheduled for my evaluation and review as a candidate uh, under care for, uh, to be a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. And I'd heard all these horror stories about candidates who'd been sent away to Princeton or uh, other, can- <laughs> other candidates who'd actually been asked to repeat that first year because they just didn't follow proper Presbyterian protocol. So the day that I was scheduled for my review, I was working on a sermon that I was scheduled to preach in my, in that church that I was interning at. I was sitting there in the church library, spent, sort of spread my books out on the table. I'd settled into this chair. It was pretty comfortable. It was warm, I was a little tired. And the next thing I knew, I woke up. I looked at the clock, I was a half hour late for the review. Worse, I was a half hour from where I needed to be. Now, I'd like to tell you that I did something holy, like prayed a prayer and sang a hymn before I got into my car, and then obeyed all the traffic laws on my way to the review, but that did not happen. By the time I parked the car and found the room, I was a full hour late. Now, the review was on the second floor of this office building, so I tried to look cool, calm, and collect as I walked up these stairs and joined a few other candidates who were waiting outside of the interview room. Well, I was standing up there, and I I just didn't know what to do. Like, do I just barge in and apologize for being so late? Do I stay outside and try to figure out how to get myself out of yet another mess? Or do I just run away and never come back and just be done with the whole thing? Well, suddenly the door opened and one of the guys that was doing the interview stepped out and he looked at me and he goes, Rich, I'm so sorry. We are running an hour late. We will be right with you. True story. Then he stepped back into the room. I just said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There have been many times in my life when the strongest voice, the most dominant voice in my head, has been the one that said, run away. Play it safe. You don't have to do this. It is so easy and so tempting to play it safe in our lives, isn't it? The problem with that is that there's always this trade involved when we play it safe. We have to trade away great adventures we never lived, faith-filled prayers that we never prayed, big, bold risks that we never took, and suddenly we find ourselves living a lifetime that we've traded away for, but we're safe. Maybe you're playing it safe today. So let me ask you, where, where are you holding back in your life? Where are you playing it safe? God invites you and me to, be, to join him in bringing heaven to earth, to be his reformers. But we first have to overcome this tendency, this, this, this desire to first play it safe. Now, there's three characteristics of a reformer that I just want to go over here today. And the first one is this, that reformers have a restless discontentment with the way things are. Now, sin wrecks havoc on the people that we love, on our community, our neighborhoods, on the world that we are around. And it alters life as God created it. It's counter-creation. Reformers want to fix that. And that's what makes us restless discontents. William Wilberforce had a restless discontentment about the slave trade, so he devoted his life to ending it. Dr. Martin Luther King had a restless discontentment with racial injustice, so he led the civil rights movement, taught us about passive resistance, and it cost him his life. Here in our own church, Cheryl Nelson and Heather Hedlund had a restless discontentment with kids in Bellevue at risk of not completing school, so they started a tutoring ministry called KidReach. Now, you are a congregation filled with restless discontents. I mean, look at y'all, restlessly discontent. I mean that in the best way possible. I, I really do, because you're volunteering in ways that help other people. You're working in schools or in places of political influence or in businesses or in your home, and you're creating change in those places. You're bringing heaven to earth in those places. One member of our church this last week, a couple weeks ago actually, told me that he was mentoring a 29-year-old heroin addict who'd grown up in their neighborhood. This kid's behavior had been so bad that one neighbor doesn't even look at the guy. But this member of our church, he, asked, he said to me, he said, how, how can I be a Christian and not love this guy, not do something to help this guy? You see, poverty, youth homelessness, people living and dying without knowing Jesus, broken families, or people growing, uh, going through life lonely, depressed, and hopeless. Man, that's the stuff that makes us restless. It makes us discontent. So, what bothers you today? What brings a tear to your eye? It makes you want to just pound your fist on the table to say, this just can't be reformers have a restless discontentment with the way things are but secondly reformers have an uncommon dream for the way things could be that's what the first christians were notorious for like they saw people not for who they were but for who god meant them to be so they gave generously and they shared what they had with the poor They formed these caring, loving communities for people who were on the outside, people back then who were like widows and orphans. They saw disease and sickness as part of the brokenness of this temporary world. So they cared for the sick, and they stayed with the dying, even at risk of losing their own lives. They saw a world created for relationship with God, but missing out on it. So they talked about Jesus wherever they went. You see, reformers... We see what others think is impossible. We dream what others can't dream. Because other people have no interest in changing the hurts and sickness, the darkness and corruption that's going around them. But we do. That's why we dream. The third characteristic of a reformer is that reformers engage and create. Sort of the theology behind that is God is a creator. He creates. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the land and the sea, he created land, uh, plants and animals, and you and me. And the one thing the one thing that distinguishes us from the rest of that list is that we have been made in the image of God. Now, theologians have spent too much time writing and talking about what all that means, probably way too much time, but all of them can agree that being image bearers means that we share some of God's creative ability. God gives us imagination to dream things. And God gives us appreciation for things like beauty and goodness and justice. And God puts his Holy Spirit in us, fills us with his power and his presence. So with all that imagination and with all of that sort of appreciation for for good things and just things, and with all of God's presence and power working in us, Man, we are just filled with creative potential. So we create things. We create new relationships, not just with the relationship, not just with new people, but we create new relationships out of the relationships we already have. We create godly children, not just by correcting their behavior, but by shaping their hearts so that they love the things that God loves, and then they hate the broken things that God hates. We create a new way of neighboring and creating community in our own neighborhoods. We create businesses and organizations and agencies. And with each new creation, we help this region and our world become more and more the way that God meant them to be. Like we populate earth with the life of heaven because we're reformers and that's what we do. Now, reformers have a restless discontentment about the way things are. Restless dr- uh, reformers dream an uncommon dream. And reformers engage and create as God meant this world to be. Now, a week ago, we all celebrated Easter together. And the events of that week, they remind us that we can't live this week or next week as if Easter week never happened. Like, because of Jesus, nothing can ever, ever be the same. It will never be the same. On Friday, they betrayed him. They whipped him, they beat him, and they hung him on a cross till he died. He filled up in his flesh the punishment that was due us all. And then they put him in a tomb, and they sealed it shut. And then it was Saturday, and it was quiet, and there was despair and there was fear. Jesus, so it seemed then to all of them, was just simply a man and now he was dead. But then, then it was Sunday. And on Sunday, Jesus suddenly rose again. And, he, and the stone got rolled away. And the tomb was empty. And death was defeated. And the devil's dominion was destroyed. And new life began And the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. And ever since that time, we are on a trajectory that is irreversible. It can never be changed. Heaven populating earth until Jesus comes again. And the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our God forever and ever and ever. Amen? Business won't do that. Politics won't do that. Education won't do that. Only we, the church, can do that. Moving in Jesus' power, showing his great love, all 4,000 of us dispersed throughout the east side in Seattle, populating earth with the life of heaven. Because we're reformers, and that's what we do. And there I stood, overlooking the cities, It was overcast, and the skies broke above my head. The Spirit of God breathed on me, and my eyes were opened. And I saw a beautiful view, a holy place, where there is no difference between the lakeside and downtown. Where men and women lived wholeheartedly, flourishing as family and neighbor. And I saw people that were satisfied with what they had, and those that had plenty giving generously to those that had needs and I saw a new way of working, where profit meant more than the bottom line, where value was understood as much more than price. I saw vendors that took responsibility for their mistakes and who followed through on their promises. I looked out and I saw there was no more loneliness or bullying in schools. Where individuals embraced exactly who they were created to be, and people rejoiced in each other's differences, where division ceased, And God showed me the center of downtown, and there was no more homelessness or economic injustice. Everyone walked in safety, and it was a place of peace. This is what I saw looking over the cities, and though it was just a vision, I'm beginning to see it now, and I believe in it now. Jesus, we do believe that you can revive the east side, that you can revive Seattle, that you can make all things new. So Jesus, would you use us in your revival project? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.